The following sermon by Pastor Rick Holland is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Some of you are still thinking, we're, we're five minutes in, is he really going into the sermon? That gives me about an hour and a half. It's all so This is all by design. Everybody is always looking for a tip. If you're into the stock market, if you work bonds for a living, you're always looking for an angle, someone who has a new stock that you ought to invest in. If you're, if you're an athlete, you're always looking for some kind of new training regime, some new exercise, something to, to do to increase your athletic prowess. If you're a, a cook, you're always looking for a new recipe or a new ingredient, a new spice. Same is true as a Christian. I think all of us understand what it's like to want an accelerant, to want a tip. You know this. um, You're always looking for the latest book, the latest book to study, the latest verse to memorize, the latest conference to go to, the latest sermon to listen to. We're always looking for an angle at accelerating our growth in Christ. What would you say if I were to tell you that God not only understands that, but planned for it? And the plan for accelerating our faith, the plan for for putting a, a new impetus in our devotion to Christ is the Lord's table. It's communion. One of the most perplexing dates in church history happened in July of 1750. As all of you know, my historical hero is Jonathan Edwards, arguably the most significant Christian thinker on American soil. In July of 1750, Jonathan Edwards was fired from his job. This great, faithful theologian and pastor was given his walking papers. After a ministry extending over a quarter century, the congregation voted him out 90% to 10%. The gravity of the situation is underscored by that incredible fact that only 10 out of 100 people wanted him to stay. Why was Jonathan Edwards fired? What would cause the greatest theologian America has ever seen to be fired from his job? I would hope that this congregation, if you had Jonathan Edwards as your pastor, would not fire him. But there was a group in Northampton that said... We're done with you. I don't know of a single pastor, by the way, in church history who was let go for the same reason that John Edwards was let go. Edwards was dismissed from his Northampton church because he held to this view. That the Lord's Supper is so important and so significant that only a believer with unconfessed sin who is in proper fellowship with Christ, should take it. The people who voted him out believe that the Lord's Supper was a means of grace. In other words, believers and unbelievers alike should come and take the Lord's Supper because it had some kind of special power and grace in it that even if you're not a believer, you could take it and the Lord would somehow use that mysteriously to bring you to himself. It's actually an old Catholic notion that was held over in New England. The reason this sounds so strange to many of us is I think very few of us think very seriously about the Lord's table. I want to suggest to you tonight that taking the Lord's Supper and taking the Lord's table may be the most important part of your Christian experience and for your Christian growth. I'd also like to suggest that it's probably the most important thing that we do as a church body together over anything else in the Scripture. Edwards believed this. It was literally the hill that he died on. He lost his job because he believed in what the Bible teaches about the Lord's table. Background was simple. His paternal, his maternal rather, uh, grandfather, Solomon Stoddard, was the pastor who preceded him. He taught that anyone, uh, even those who were uh, scandalous but had recently repented, could take the Lord's Supper. 
He thought they could receive the gospel and special grace by doing so. But Edward's study of Scripture led him to conclude that only repentant believers should take the Lord's Supper. And when pressed to let unbelievers participate in the Lord's Supper, he said no. And they said, thank you for your services, and they fired him. They voted him out, which put him in an interesting place with great delight. The greatest theological mind to ever think on American soil went to work with Indians who had fifth grade educations. After that, you know, he went over to Princeton where he contracted a disease and died. I want us to look briefly tonight at the importance of rightly understanding the Lord's Supper. One of the things that I so love in coming to Mission Road is I inherited from Rod Gertson a very high view of the Lord's table. It's a precious time, it's a sacred time, it's a joyful time, and it's a frightful time. Lord's Supper is so serious that it requires very careful handling. One of the men who I uh, like to read the most, uh, he, he was an, an Anglican. He was uh, in the last part of the 1800s ministering. In fact, he was a contemporary of Charles Spurgeon. His name was J.C. Ryle, John Charles Ryle. Ryle was an amazing pastor, an amazing theologian, an amazing preacher. Uh, he was basically using the last part of his life to warn the Anglican church, which was at that time very evangelical, to hold on to the gospel, to not be influenced by Catholicism, and to remember the martyrs who died for the very truths that he held precious and sacred. What's horrific and sad is all of the predictions, all of the warnings that J.C. Ryle gave to the Anglican church came to pass. They abandoned the gospel, They abandoned missionary outreach. They abandoned the past. They abandoned church history. And all of it was centered on their understanding and view of the Lord's table. Ryle writes this, It is impossible to overstate the importance of the Lord's Supper. I owe a strong and growing conviction that error about the Lord's Supper is one of the commonest and most dangerous errors of the present day, end quote. That was at the end of the 1800s. It's no less true today. He goes on, Perhaps no part of Christian religion is so thoroughly misunderstood as the Lord's Supper. No other point have there been, on no other point, have there been so many disputes and strife for over 2,000 years. So what is the Lord's Supper about? We have very clear instruction. This is not a mystery. This is not hard to figure out. You can go down to the third grade Sunday school class and read the passage before us, and they will understand exactly what it means. Now, a little quick footnote. What we're talking about is referred to in the Scripture in several ways. You you find it called the breaking of bread in Acts 2, uh, 42, and in 1 Corinthians 10, 16. It's also called communion in 1 Corinthians 10, 16. The table of the Lord in 1 Corinthians 10, 21. The Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11, 21. 20. It's even called the Eucharist based on that Greek word, Eucharist, in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty four. And if you've attended church for any length of time, you have no doubt had to make a decision about what is this thing they do? What does it mean? Should I do it? Should my children do it? Who qualifies for it? Why do we do this thing? I remember as a, as a young kid uh, growing up in my Southern Baptist uh, church, My parents would not let me take communion. I don't think they understood why, but they were wise for doing that. I hadn't yet been converted. But I so badly wanted to do it. You know why? Everybody else was doing it. And I wanted to know what it tasted like. I wanted to know what it was like to do that. I believe if you understand what's involved in taking the Lord's Supper, you will find the basic elements for growth in the entire summary of your Christian experience. In fact, the entirety of what you believe about Christianity can be summarized in the two major points that we come to celebrate every time we come to the Lord's table. Let's look at this text together before us. And as we do so, I want to give you a really simple outline. The Lord's Supper provides two checkpoints for spiritual health. The Lord's Supper provides two checkpoints for spiritual health. And these two checkpoints that we're going to do tonight in the Lord's Supper, 
These two checkpoints are, are the same that should happen every hour, every day, every week, every month in your life. First is very simple. It's in verses 23 to 26. Remembering Jesus. That's the first checkpoint. Remembering Jesus. Verse 23. 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord. It's important to see that Paul calls Jesus the Lord. He does so twice here. Also, which I delivered to you. I received slash delivered. That's referring to the account of the Last Supper. It was told to him. Paul wasn't there, but he heard about what Jesus did on that last night when he was betrayed and he had instituted the Lord's table with his men. That, second time he calls him Lord, the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. Paul's referring to the Last Supper that Jesus had with his disciples. It's clearly outlined in John 13 through 17. Matthew 26, verses 26 to 29, highlight the specifics of him taking this, this bread and this, this wine and saying, this is my body, this is my blood. Paul's referring back to that night when he was turned, Jesus was turned in by Judas to the authorities. Verse 24, and when he, that is the Lord, had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you, do this, eat this, celebrate this, commemorate this, in remembrance of me. Jesus took what was the Passover bread at that time. It was the time of the Passover. He took the Passover bread, which was really probably a piece of pita bread. It was a piece of bread that they would take and tear off into strips, almost like an unfried tortilla chip. It was floppy, and they would... They would dip it in sauce. They would dip it in fig uh, paste. They would dip it, dip it in what, what would be a, a olive paste or jelly in, in our vernacular, and they would eat it. He took that bread and he broke it. And he broke it in front of them in, on purpose to give them a visual that that was the breaking of his body. It was intended to be graphic. It was intended to be visual. Unleavened bread, no yeast. As you know from looking at the Old Testament, that symbolized the Jews and their hasty departure from Egypt. He said, don't even, get, don't even let the bread rise. Take unleavened bread, bake it, make it a little pita uh, slice, and bring it with you. But whereas the bread of the Passover represented the physical deliverance of the people of Israel from Egypt, the bread of the Lord's Supper would take its place in greater symbolism and greater significance. Namely, it would represent his humanity, his humility. I mean, think about what Jesus is saying. My body broken for you. They are hours away. The following morning, Jesus would be arrested. He'd be put on the cross by, by, by mid-morning. The Lord Jesus Christ, who they were just beginning to realize, this is God. He was absolutely affirming of his identity in that last conversation. And then he says, this is my body and it's broken for you. They had to say, what is he talking about? How can God's body in flesh be broken? Well, as we know, that would be his sacrificial, voluntary atonement for the sins of those who would believe. The key to the whole observance of the Lord's Supper and why I think the Lord's Supper is really a key that unlocks Christian living in general is in this first idea of remembering Jesus. God never tells us in the Bible to do something that we naturally do or we would do it. We wouldn't need the reminder. He never says be reminded of something unless he knew we would what? Forget. We are forgetful people. All I have to do to prove that is give you two words, okay? Car keys, right? How many times have you looked for your car keys all over the place? You can ask our nice friend and administrative assistant of our church, Kathy Taylor. This is last week. I was looking all over the office for my car keys, and they were in my hand.
He says, when you do this, do it to remember me. And the implication is, it's hard to remember and it's easy to forget, right? I was once talking to a friend who confessed he was having trouble remembering his to-do list and his things that he needed to do. So he spent a lot of money on a little handheld device, put all of his to-do list in, and I said, did it help? He said, no, because I forget to look at it. We all understand what that is. Ever tied a string around your finger, written a note to yourself, written a note on yourself to try to remember things? I'm getting so forgetful that it's a regular occurrence that I will call someone and while it's ringing, try to remember who is it I'm calling and why I am doing that. So if I ever call you and, I, and you say hello and I say, hi, this is Rick and aren't we supposed to talk about something? You'll just be gracious with me, okay? Just go to the internet. There's memo to me, rememberit.com, 101reminders.com and on and on. We are in a fight for forgetfulness, against forgetfulness and for remembering. The most devastating and damaging thing to forget is presented here. You and I are in constant danger of forgetting Jesus. Don't miss what he's saying. He doesn't say, remember to obey. Remember to be good. Remember to go to church. He says, do this to remember me because we forget. How often a day does your mind gravitate back toward the Savior's life, his death, his commands, the fact that we're, uh, we're, our morality is regulated by, by him to please him. He is the issue. It's in our mission statement, right? To value Jesus Christ above all else. How often do you stop to think deeply about the death of Jesus? Jesus knew we would forget, so he instituted the Lord's table as a reminder, as a gracious realignment, recalibration, reminder of our forgetfulness and our need to remember him. As often as you do this, remember me. How long can you go without needing, refreshing thoughts of Jesus. You see how this is not only a picture of what should happen tonight at the table, but a picture of what should happen week in and week out, day in and day out, hour in and hour out in our lives? Coming back to remember Him, knowing that we would be forgetful, He instituted the Lord's table so we would come and deliberately focus on remembering Him. That's why we have to take our time at the table. That's why we have to take a deep breath spiritually at the table. That's why we have to be deliberate and intentional at the table and ask ourselves and arrest our attention and focus our imagination on Him. Communion, then, is a grace of God given so that we will do what is most healthy to our soul, which is give focus and attention to Christ. In the same way, verse 25 says, he took the cup also after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it, and he says it a second time, to remember me in remembrance of me. So the two elements, the bread and the cup, are intended to be visual representations of the life and the deity and the death of Jesus. We're to have sanctified imaginations every time we come to the table and focus our attention and close our eyes and rivet our focus on the fact that we have a God who sent his only begotten son to die on a cross so that whoever believes on him wouldn't perish but inherit eternal life. It's all about remembering the gospel. And this is a grace, and this is an announcement. It's a grace because he causes us to remember it's an announcement because he tells us we will forget. 
the direct reference to the blood Jesus spilled on the cross as our substitute, the new covenant, the gospel in my blood, the cup of wrath was drank by Jesus so that we could drink the cup of remembrance. The Lord's Supper then, it really, it's, it's like a parent lifting up a child to, to have a better view. Years ago, um, when, when the boys were younger, we had a, I hope I don't get in trouble with this, we had a snake. It was a red albino corn snake. It was bright orange. His name was Crush, the Orange Crush. It was kind of funny. Well, when we were, um, we were deciding which kind of snake to get, I remember that we took the boys down to the pet store. Um, boys need snakes, by the way. Either have them or kill them, but they need to interact with snakes. We went down the pet store, and I remember little Mark, who was, who was a little fellow at the time, he wanted, and these, were, these, these um, aquariums were up higher. He was wanting so desperately to see in there. The two older boys could see and find. And I remember him saying, pick me up, Dad, pick me up. I want to see, I want to see. And I remember at that time, because I was preaching on communion that coming week, thinking that's exactly what we should be telling the Lord. Pick me up. Let me see. I want a better angle. Help me see Jesus. Are you aggressive about being lifted up? Getting a better vantage point. Seeing your dying Savior for your and my wretched sin. By the way, look at verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. When we have communion in a few minutes, you're all going to be preachers. You're going to be proclaimers. You are going to be proclaiming his death until he comes. We're called to proclaim his death. It's the message of the cross, the proclamation of the gospel. And why is it only we do that until he comes? Because once he does come and we're with him, we won't have anyone to evangelize. By the way, he is coming. Notice this verse. He is coming. The first checkpoint that we ought to have at communion is the same checkpoint we ought to train ourselves to have in our lives. Just remember Jesus. You want a healthy soul? Remember your Savior. Not just morality, not just doing better, not just trying harder. You remember the person and the work of Christ. The Old Testament prepares you for him. The Gospels tell you about him. The epistles explain him. The apocalypse says to be ready for his coming. There's a second checkpoint. And this is the more penetrating one. Not only to remember Jesus, but number two, examining your life. The first checkpoint, remembering Jesus. The second checkpoint, examining your life. Now you can see how these two points in the communion exercise are really the points of life. Remember Jesus, look at your life. Repent of sin, orient your, your soul toward Christ. Verse 27, therefore, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord, here we find he's the Lord again, the kurios, the, the great master, in an, this is an important phrase, unworthy manner, he shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. What does it mean to be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord? It means you're guilty of not remembering and reverencing the greatness of his death. But a man, do you underline things in your Bible? This is one to underline. But a man must examine himself. And in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. This should be obvious, when you come face to face in remembering Jesus, you instantly come face to face with your own sinfulness. See the Lord is to understand yourself, to be aware of your own sinfulness, to examine yourself. J.C. Ryle again, who wrote so much about how if we lose the importance of the Lord's table, we lose the importance of our faith. He says this, quote, a sense of our own unworthiness is the best worthiness 
we can bring to the Lord's table. A deep feeling of our own entire indebtedness to Christ for all we have and hope for is the best feeling we can bring with us. So how are you worthy to take the Lord's Supper? By knowing that you are what? Unworthy. I told you over and over my favorite hymn is Amazing Love and my favorite lyric is that chorus, Amazing Love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? That's only amazing when we understand the unworthiness of our own soul. The, why would the God of the universe do this for me? Now, we should have a horrific fear about approaching the Lord's table. It has been so misunderstood throughout church history. You could idolize it. That's the Catholic view where you make it an idol. Uh, I, I'll never forget being in Rome. Uh, Kim and I were going through uh, St. Peter's Basilica and um, uh, there was off in one of the uh, um, enclaves a, a, a communion service going on, a, a Eucharist service. And our translator, uh, David, was there. And, and he said, this is perfect timing. Let me translate what he was saying. And, and he says, this is the bread. He was translating as the priest was talking. He says, this is the body of Jesus, now again crucified for you. Now again crucified? What does Hebrews say? He died once. Therefore, you can understand why they idolized that bread and that cup. You understand why it turns into the literal, but they would say literal slash figurative body of Christ and literal slash figurative blood of Jesus. That's easy to beat up. How about neglecting or ignoring it, though? Just, I don't care if the Lord's Supper is tonight. I want to stay home. Uh, I, I, it's, it's at the end of the service. I want to rush out and get a lunch. Misunderstanding it. Thinking that it's more than it is, meaning it's only an illustration and only a memorial, or thinking that it's less than it is, which is a grace given to the body of Christ to do together in remembering and examining. But the greatest danger is in this point. And that is that we could come to the table and take the Lord's Supper without examining our souls, without examining our lives, without looking into our hearts. You have to be careful here. Does this mean that we perfect ourselves before we, before we take the Lord's table? No. You're incapable of that. What it means is we're in a state of understanding our need for forgiveness, the greatness of Jesus who died for our forgiveness, our unworthiness to receive that forgiveness, and being in a state where we want to repent of that for which Jesus died. We're not harboring and holding and coddling and pursuing the sin for which Jesus died. So, in my own life, in a few minutes when we take the Lord's table, we'll have a moment of silence, and I will remember and think through and pray about what sins was I confessing a month ago when we did this? How's my repentance on those? Let me tell you, sometimes it, the Lord has given me grace, and it's much better. Sometimes it's about the same. Sometimes it's much worse. A feeling, an attitude, a frustration a lust, a desire, an envy, a jealousy, a discontentment. The issue isn't, did you become perfect since last time you took the table? The issue is, are you more aware of your sin and need of God's grace to help you repent? This table is not for perfect people. This table is for people who know they're not perfect. Ryle again says, let it forever be remembered that the man who is unfit for the Lord's Supper is unfit to die. Isn't that good? 
The issue of remembering Jesus and examining yourself are the issues to prepare you for his coming and for our death. Verse 29. For who, he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. In other words, you're not aware of what's going on in this memorial, in this remembrance. How serious is this? How serious is the Lord's table? Please shudder with me in this next verse. For this reason, people who take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, many among you are weak. Is your soul weak? Are you unhealthy spiritually? You have physical groanings and aches and pains. You say, is that associated? Read the Psalms. David had physical consequences for the harboring of sin. And sick. Rick, are you saying that people get sick because they take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner? I would never say that, but Paul did. Yes, that's exactly what we're saying. And some, a number, are dead. They sleep. I believe this verse teaches us that to take the Lord's table in an unworthy manner is so dangerous that God could take your life. As a footnote, I'm quite comfortable with the interpretation of 1 John which says there is a sin unto death that this is likely that sin. But when we are judged, verse 31, but if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. Well, how do you judge yourself rightly? By getting right? No, by knowing you're unworthy. If we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. This is a purifying ceremony, a memorial. So then, brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. Serving one another is the effect of contemplating the cross. By the way, he says, if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. Don't come to the Lord's table to, to get a meal. Now, that doesn't make sense to us because it's a little cracker. Back in the day when they were breaking loaves apart and you had a whole loaf or a whole pita bread and, you, and you're, you're breaking that apart, you can say, hey, I'm hungry. I'm, uh, there's communion tonight at the, at the church. I'm just going to go eat there. He's saying... This is precious. This is special. Think rightly about it. In other words, be focused and purposeful, deliberate, and don't be distracted in your taking of the Lord's table. Live an examined life. That's different than living a perfect life. When you come to the Lord's table, you don't come saying, wow, I'm glad I've purified myself. You come to the Lord's table saying, I know exactly how the Lord needs to purify me. I'm aware of my sin, and I'm keenly and deeply aware of his forgiveness and what that forgiveness cost the Son of God. What I want to do now is turn a little bit of a few pages in church history for you. This is going to be uh, a little bit graphic. This is going to be a little bit painful, but I think it's really important. It's blessed and ministered to me. To gauge the importance of a proper understanding of the Lord's Supper, I want us to examine briefly the 45 terrible months that Queen Mary Tudor, Bloody Mary, reigned in England. From February 4th, 1555 to November 10th, 1558, the Protestants were, were put to the ultimate test about their convictions on the Lord's Supper. When you hear about the English martyrs, when you hear about Bloody Mary's martyrs, get this, they all died over communion. They all died over their view of the Protestant view of what we just discussed, rather than believing what the Catholics viewed at the time was called the real presence. Remember I said Jesus was physically crucified again in the element? 
To disbelieve that in Mary's time meant that you were to be under the condemnation of execution. History knows Mary Tudor as Bloody Mary, but very few have a clue that she was killing people over communion. She was a staunch Catholic. When she came to the throne, England had just begun its transformation in the Protestant Reformation. I think it's interesting. We're talking about 1555. Luther had nailed his theses to the door of Wittenberg in 1517. How fast the world was responding to the Protestant Reformation. This Protestant Reformation in England infuriated Mary. The long story about how she she came to the throne, maybe one night we'll do a a special um, just biographical biographical sketch on uh, um, uh, um, Lady Jane Grey, the nine-day queen, who uh, after Edward VI came to the throne through some manipulations by her, her parents and her uncle, and then she, uh, she was only there for nine days. Mary came to the throne. She was the rightful heir, according to the English um, um, uh, heritage, and she came, and then uh, there was a series of events that happened in Jane Grey's life that ultimately culminated in her as a 14-year-old girl, get this, a 14-year-old girl standing up to the chief theologian and cardinal in England and dismantling him theologically. So much so that he had affection for her, realized he had lost the debate about communion, and when Mary had her executed as a 14-year-old, 16 by that time, having her head severed, this cardinal was the one who said, I will go to the scaffold and hold her hand with her. The Lord's Supper was the field on which the theologies of Catholicism and Protestantism would play out. Why? Because communion was the visible expression of the gospel, of what they believed about the gospel. So as we said, the Catholic view was that it was a re-crucifixion of Christ called the real presence. Mary made it a law that if you denied the doctrine of Christ's real presence in the Mass, you were guilty of heresy and to be condemned to death and burned at the stake. England then was holding its breath to see if any of the Protestants would actually fall under this condemnation, and if so, what they would do over the course of the next 40-plus months, 227 men and 56 women were burned alive because they held to what the Bible says about the Lord's table. For them, a proper understanding of the Lord's table indicated a proper understanding of the gospel. I don't mean to sensationalize this, but I want to tell you these stories. First man, the test case for all this was a pastor named John Rogers. He was burned at a place called Smithfield. Just some interesting historical um, data. Uh, Smithfield uh, was a big field where they they would trade goods back in that day. Smithfield, where it is today, uh, holds a hospital. That hospital was the place where Martin Lloyd-Jones practiced medicine before he became a preacher, just in an interesting turn. John Rogers was burned in Smithfield on Monday, the 4th of February, 1555. He was the first Protestant Marian martyr, meaning under Mary. Let me read you from J.C. Rowell, who chronicles this. He says, Rogers had assisted uh, Tyndale and Coverdale in bringing out the most important version of the English Bible, a version commonly known as Matthew's Bible. Indeed, he was condemned as Rogers alias Matthews. This circumstance, in all human probability, made him a marked man and was one of the causes he was the first brought to the stake. On the morning of his martyrdom, he was roused hastily in his cell at Newgate, just a few uh, hundred yards from there. Hardly allowed to dress himself, he was led forth to Smithfield on foot within sight of the church of St. Of Sepulcher where he had preached. I was just there with some of our uh, uh, elders and, and my wife a few years ago, and you could see the church. It was only 100 yards, maybe 50 to 75 yards from the church where he was preaching. That's where he was burned. 
By the wayside stood his wife and ten children, one baby, whom the diabolical cruelty of Bishop Bonner had flatly refused to leave him prison to see. He just saw them barely and was hardly allowed to stop as he marched on calmly to the stake, repeating the 51st Psalm. Ryle says, Up to that day, men could not tell how the English reformers would behave in the face of death and could hardly believe that the, uh, the dignitaries would actually give these dignitaries would give their bodies to be burned for their religion. But when they saw Rogers, the first martyr, walking steadily and unflinchingly into a fiery grave, the enthusiasm of the crowd knew no bounds. They rent the air with thunders of applause. Even the French ambassador who was there wrote home of the scene and said that Rogers went to death as if he was walking to his own wedding. By God's grace, he died with comparative ease, and so the first Marian, meaning of Mary, martyr, passed away. On the last night in his prison cell at Newgate, he slept so soundly that the jailer had to wake him in the morning to tell him it was time for him to dress and prepare to die. He was happy, for he knew that however he might suffer in the fire, he would soon be in heaven. John Rogers. Another pre preacher, John Hooper. When Hooper arrived, I'm quoting Ryle again. When Hooper arrived at this spot, he was allowed to pray, though strictly forbidden to speak to the people. And there he knelt down and prayed a prayer which has been preserved and recorded by Fox in Fox's Book of Martyrs and is of exquisite and touching character. Then a box was put before him containing a full pardon if he would only recant his view of communion. His only answer was, away with it if you love my soul, away with it. He was then fastened to the stake by an iron round his, by iron around his waist and fought his last fight with the king of terrors. Of all the martyrs, none perhaps except Ridley suffered more than Hooper did. Three times the fire had to be relit because the, the wood would not burn properly. Three quarters of an hour, the noble sufferer endured mortal agony, says Fox, neither moving backward or forward nor side to side, but only praying, Lord Jesus have mercy on me, receive my spirit. Beating his breast with one hand until it was burned to a stump and the good Bishop of Gloucester passed away. Ryle says 7,000 came to watch him burn. There was a blind boy there who was visiting that martyrdom, that burning, and he said, this man has enabled me to see the light of the gospel. Robert Farrar, burned at Carthman on Friday the 30th of March, 1555. One single fact is recorded which shows this good bishop's courage and constancy in the striking light. He told a friend before the day of his execution that if he saw him once stir in the fire from the pain of burning, he need not believe the doctrine he had taught. When the awful time came, he did not forget his promise, and by God's grace, he kept it as well. He stood in the flames, holding out his hands until they were burned to stumps, until a bystander in mercy struck him on the head, putting an end to his suffering. One of the more famous burnings that you're all aware of is Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer. Ridley, a younger man, Latimer in his 80s. On the day of their martyrdom, Ryle writes, they are brought separately to the place of execution. This is at Oxford. I have a picture on my computer that every time I turn on my computer, computer, there's an X in the street. There's a cross in the street where these men were martyred. Bicycles, cars drive over it all the time, not knowing what it was. And that picture reminds me of this scene. On the day of their martyrdom, they were brought separately to the place of execution, which was at the end of Broad Street, Oxford, close to Balliol College. Ridley arrived first to the ground, and seeing Latimer come afterwards, ran and kissed him, saying, Be of good heart, brother, for God will either assuage the fury of the flames or else strengthen us to abide it. They then prayed together earnestly and walked with one another 
though no one could hear what they said. They prayed earnestly and talked again. And after this, they had to listen to a sermon by a wretched renegade named Smith being forbidden to make any answer for the Catholic doctrine of communion. They were condemned to make, they were commanded then, make ready for death. Ridley's last words before the fire were, was lighted were these. Heavenly Father, I give thee most hearty thanks that thou hast called me to a profession even unto death. I beseech thee, Lord, give mercy on this realm of England and deliver the same from her, all her enemies. Latimer's last words were like a blast of a trumpet which rings even to this day. Ridley says this. Latimer said, Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. That echo from 1 Kings 2, where David said Solomon, Be the man, play the man. We shall this day, by God's grace, light such a candle in England as I trust shall never be put out. When the flames began to rise, Ridley cried out with a loud voice in Latin, Into thy hands I commend my spirit. Lord, receive my spirit. And afterwards, he repeated the, the words in English. Latimer cried out as well on the other side, Father of heaven, receive my soul. Latimer, being old, above 80 years, died quickly. Ridley, however, suffered long and painfully from the bad management of the fire by those who attended the execution. At length, however, the flames reached a vital part of him, and he fell at Latimer's feet and was at rest. I've got a dozen of these. John Philpott, I won't read all of these, came to Smithfield when he was burned, knelt down and said, I will pay my vows in thee, O Smithfield. Then he kissed the stake and said, Shall I disdain to suffer at this stake, seeing my Redeemer did not refuse the most vile death on the cross for me? Maybe one more. This one is in um, Jasper Ridley's book called Bloody Mary's Martyrs. I highly commend that book to your reading. It is, it is a painful book to read. I was reading it on a plane one time and sobbing. And uh, I know the person next to me wondered what I was doing. This is a woman, Peritine Kalshwin. Ridley writes this. The Channel Islands were in Mary's realm, and in the summer of 1556, a case arose in Guernsey which had repercussions which continued after Mary's death in the reign of Elizabeth I. A woman named Catherine Kalshwin lived in St. Petersport with her two daughters, Peritine and Gillimore. Peritine involved, uh, uh, became involved with uh, a dispute with a woman who stole, stole, uh, stole a goblet and tried to sell it to Peritine. But Peritine informed the authorities and was arrested and flogged. So you get the idea. This girl named Peritine finds a person who steals something, turns her in. This lady is then flogged and punished. In revenge, this lady denounced Catherine Kalshwin and her two daughters as heretics. And the three women were convicted of heresy and sentenced to be burned Perotine did not tell the judges at her trial that she was eight months pregnant. When the fire was lit, the heat of the fire caused Perotine to give birth to her baby son who fell in the fire and the flames burned around him. One of the spectators rushed forward to save the baby and pulled him out of the fire, laid him on the grass. Then an English man-at-arms picked him up and he was handed from one official to another until he was given to the sheriff in charge of the execution. The sheriff ordered his men, throw the baby back in the fire and he was burned with his mother, his grandmother, and his aunt. tell you those things, not to sensationalize. But these people died because of what they believed about what 1 Corinthians tells us about the Lord's table.
Before we go to the Lord's table, one more anecdote. John Calvin, in 1553, had been preaching on the seriousness of the Lord's table. The situation played out in front of his whole church. A group of people called the Libertines openly believed that a Christian could enjoy sexual immorality and freedom in the name of Christian freedom. One well-to-do Libertine was forbidden by Calvin to take the Lord's Supper, but appealed to the city council who said he could participate. The stage was set for a conflict when he came into Calvin's church to take communion. In his mind, he could put Calvin in his place by taking communion in the public service. I've stood in this place. It's just under the the crow's nest pulpit. There was a table set there. Calvin was behind. The the congregants, congregants would come up and receive the elements from the pastor who was Calvin there in St. Peter's. When the time came at the end of the service for the bread and the cup to be administered by Pastor Calvin, a group of libertines stood and rushed Calvin to be given the elements. Calvin threw his arms around the bread and around the wine and said, These hands you may crush, these arms you may lop off, my life you may take, my blood is yours, you may shed it but you shall never force me to give holy things to the profane and dishonor the table of my God. We have an open communion at Mission Road Bible Church, meaning this is between you and the Lord. But I want to say with all love, if I or any of the elders knew that you were in open rebellion against the Lord and in coddling affection to your sin, unwilling to repent and yet wanting to participate in the Lord's table, we would ask you not to and then forbid you to and then say you want to lop off our arms but you cannot get to these elements. Why? To do it in an unworthy manner is to eat and drink judgment to yourself. It's because of love. So you say, why do we take, make, make such a big deal about communion? Because we love you. Because we love one another. Because it's morally important that you take this seriously. All that's pretty heavy, so how do you take it seriously? Really simple. Remember Jesus? Confess your sins. Do you understand the gospel so well, so preciously, that you're willing to make the most minor sacrifice for the Lord, the gospel, even this table, like these made the ultimate sacrifice? Let's bow our heads together. You've been listening to a presentation of Mission Road Bible Church in Prairie Village, Kansas. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com.